Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It's funny how sometimes our lives can intersect with people that we would never expect to meet. When you cross paths with somebody whose life is so different from yours, it can change everything. Like when a young Marine arrived at Camp Pendleton near San Diego back in the late 1960s, ready to fight in Vietnam. He met the teenage daughter of a farm worker. She was protesting that war, and they forged an unlikely friendship found out they had more than a war in common. We thought that California is the land of the free. I mean, it would be the golden land, but I learned different. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. This week, a Veterans Day special about unlikely encounters with vets who served during the Vietnam War. The California Report's April Demboski sits down to a lunch with a former soldier that makes her think about what it means to tell somebody else's story. He's wearing a wool VFW beret and suspenders. Bits of Mongolian beef fall into his beard as he tells me the same war stories he told me a few weeks before. We're starting today's show by revisiting a story called The Teen, the Marine, and the Green Machine. We thought it would be perfect to mark this election week and this Veterans Day weekend. It was the late 1960s, and young men from across the nation were being drafted to go to Vietnam. Cliff Mansker signed up willingly, though. He was a baby-faced 17-year-old, and he was determined to join the Marines because he wanted to get away from his strict parents and from the west side of Chicago. The future there, what I saw, was not very good because the the guys that I knew, the friends that I had, they, they either ended up in jail or they were dead. It was drugs or alcohol. He tried to stay out of trouble, though. He'd been in high school ROTC for three years. I was far advanced on the recruits in there because I already knew how to strip a rifle down. I already knew how to drill, how to march. And uh, I was in the special drill team, so I didn't even know how to twirl a rifle around. Once he joined the Marines, Cliff says, people started treating him with respect. And when he got shipped to Camp Pendleton near San Diego, he was thrilled. Come out here to California, you can find a better life. And so that's what I did, that's what my brother did, and most of us 
the young men in my family did. At Pendleton, he connected with other African-American Marines. Together, they listened to The Temptations and James Brown. The Black Power Movement, which had strong roots in California, was spreading. Cliff was embracing his pride in his black identity. He and his friends would mash their hair tight to their skulls under stocking caps in front of their commanding officers. Then comb out their afros once they got off base. Racism in my own town, it was at that particular time the most segregated place on earth. So uh, we thought that California is the land of the free. I mean, it would be the golden land. But I learned different. I learned that California was even worse. Just outside Camp Pendleton, in the beach town of Oceanside, another teenager was growing up in the shadow of the Vietnam War. Her name is Teresa Cerda, and her mother was a farm worker picking strawberries and string beans. Teresa grew up in a working-class neighborhood and remembers watching the Latino and African-American kids get shipped off to Vietnam. And they came back to poverty, and they fought this war on behalf of the government, and they were still, they were worse off than when they left. Because I grew up in a military city, a lot of my classmates' parents were involved in military. They were sent over to Vietnam, some came back, some didn't. Teresa began questioning why the U.S. was sending young men to fight in Vietnam in the first place. People are being killed for what? I couldn't understand what, what the reasoning was. I started digging into what I thought were some of the reasons, and they weren't right at all. And so at age 16, she got involved with the Movement for a Democratic Military, a group organizing GIs to stand up against the war. Well, this is the block that I used to come to every night to leaflet the Marines in town. Say, hey, are you a Marine? And they'd say, oh, how could you tell? <laughs> and so I'd say, would you be interested in joining us for some coffee? She was inviting them to a place called the Green Machine. It was one of many coffee houses around the country where active duty GIs could come get free coffee, listen to music, read underground newspapers, and talk with peace activists. Wait. There she was, a young teenage girl, standing in front of strip joints and bars, trying to convince Marines to get into her car so she could give them a ride to the coffee house. She dressed in jeans, boots, and army fatigues to downplay her gender. I actually spoke some of their lingo because I picked it up, you know, like the green suck. That's slang for the Marines. And I say, is the green suck sucking the life out of you? You know, let's talk about it. And here's a place where you can talk about it and be safe and be welcomed. Out of earshot of commanding officers. And mostly it was the GIs venting. We realized that early on that they needed to vent about their experience in the military. And every other word was laced with F this, F that. And they found a place where they could vent safely. Especially, she says, the GIs returning from Vietnam who had witnessed brutal violence. They were traumatized. We didn't know it then. I remember at first I was so angry at them because they would talk about the atrocities they committed over there. They say they're anti-war, yet they're bragging about the stuff they did over there. But I slowly realized that they needed to talk about it because in their heart, they didn't think it was right. 232 GIs killed and 900 wounded makes one of the heaviest weeks of the Vietnam War. And it is not a week 
is just over two days, the past two days, two of the worst we have known in Vietnam. Cliff Mansker wanted to ship out to Vietnam, but he never left the States. His brother was serving in Vietnam, and under military policy, two siblings couldn't be dispatched into combat at the same time. Instead, the Marines sent him to cook school. His job was to feed thousands of Marines returning from Vietnam or heading out from Camp Pendleton. But on base, he found himself fighting a different battle within the ranks. And just a note, as he tells this story, there's some graphic language. There was a big, big riot on the base at the movie theater. They were playing uh, in the heat of the night with Sidney Portier. Seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow. Yeah. And we were sitting in the theater, the black Marines the and, the, and the Hispanics on one side and the white Marines over in the, on the other side. I didn't catch what you said. Get rid of the naked. You don't, we will. So as they was using a lot of the, uh, the racial epithets in the, uh, in the movie, all of the white guys was cheering, you know. And so after the movie was over, the black guys and the Hispanics went out the side door and then the white guys came out and then the fight started. Cliff was pummeled, returned the punch, and when it was over, he was locked up in the base jail, called the Brig. He'd already been branded a troublemaker for questioning his commanding officers. He says many of them were white from the South and had no qualms about using racial slurs. You know, I questioned what they were doing. And I say, this is not right. What you're doing is not right. The way you're treating us. <clears throat> I say, you're not working 18 hours a day. We are. You know, shut up, nigga. What are you talking about? So I remember they locked me up for three days. Cliff's anger at the way he was being treated in the Marine Corps grew as the months passed. One day, a fellow Marine told him about a meeting of disgruntled GIs. They were not only questioning racism in the military, but the whole point of the war in Vietnam, where so many black and brown GIs were dying on the front lines. A new phenomenon has cropped up at several army bases these days, a so-called underground GI press, which consists largely of anti-war newspapers. Military authorities are clamping down hard on Our the Our newspaper was actually distributed out in the base. Yeah, I used to drop bundles off around the different areas and to the guys who would pass them out there. And I'd go to every barracks and place one of these on their bunks or wherever I could. And they could never catch me. That's why they call me the midnight paper boy because it was always at midnight. When Cliff and I meet, I pull out a stack of copies of those old newspapers that I found in an archive. On a front page from September 1970, there's a young Cliff, two fists in the air. Below the picture, it reads, Prisoner of War. Oh, wow. <laughs> you want to just read what that says? Yeah, I see. Brother Cliff Masker is currently being held in Camp Pendleton Maximum Security Unit. For two reasons. First, most easily seen is the fact that he is black. The second, because he was revealing to his black brothers the truth about the racist, fascist Marine Corps. Brother oh, Cliff. Mansker. Mansker was a wonderful man. He was a fantastic organizer, Cliff Mansker. He 
brought the group together. I mean, there was a lot of hot-blooded black GIs because they were pissed. And I think Cliff had the unique ability to channel that anger and heat into an organization that became pretty powerful for its day. Teresa met Cliff at the Green Machine Coffee House. Some days she'd leave high school early to volunteer there. One of her jobs was to go on base, where she visited with Marines locked up for affiliating with the anti-war movement. And I was supposed to be the little sister, and we would pass information about what was going on in the movement and, and what we were doing to help get him out and stuff like that. Until one day I got caught and was banned from Camp Pendleton. It's still so amazing to me that you were so brave. I, I didn't see myself as brave at all. I mean, there was moments like sneaking into the you know, brig under false pretenses, but that scared me and getting arrested. Actually, I got arrested a couple of times, but I actually, I used to thought it was because I hated the war so much. Then I started realizing it's because I love the people that were being used as cannon fodder, and that just wasn't right. Some of those Marines attended her high school graduation, cheered when she raised a fist, power to the people, on stage. They take her to the shooting range to teach her how to use a gun. And Marines like Cliff Mansker stood up for her when her classmates called her a commie. And what I remember about Cliff is that he had these hands that were so expressive. And I remember he used to sing to me. We were so close. We were such good friends. He's just a wonderful, gentle person with a lot of fire in his heart. Cliff and Teresa had lost touch after the war. Once I met Teresa and learned her story, I searched for Cliff. And through Facebook, I found him living in Moreno Valley. He agreed to make the two-hour drive down to Oceanside to see her. This is so my God. Oh, it's so good to see you. Same here. Oh, oh I'm wow. going to cry. Don't let me cry. <laughs> Today, Teresa is a grandmother of four. She's got a shy smile, wears jean shorts and flip-flops. Cliff is a pastor at a Christian church, married with two grown children. God, it's been 40, what, 47, 48 yeah, years? Yeah, Oh, wow. Let me see your hands. Oh, they're the beautiful hands I remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so anxious to hear all about your life from this. Cliff is wearing a baseball hat that spells out Marine in bright capital letters. This was probably the one strongest one friendship I had with Marine. So I am so, so glad to hear him and see him. Memory Lane. It kind of reminds me of this one because this one, it kind of had like a little porch. Teresa drives Cliff down a quiet residential street. Small houses, front porches, fenced-in yards. They stop at the bungalow where the Green Machine was headquartered. In the 60s, prominent anti-war activists came by to show their support. So you guys, was this the house? You said Angela Davis stopped by the house. She stopped by the one in Vista, but she also stopped off mm -hmm. here. And so did Jane Fonda. As an anti-war group in a military town, they kept their guard up. Organizers took turns patrolling the yard. You remember the sandbags we had at the... <laughs> I remember them well. I remember they were stacked up on the porch here. 
We had barbed wire, I believe, on the sides of the fences uh -huh. so that we could keep people from sneaking over at night. So what was it that you guys were afraid of? We knew we could get attacked, uh, you know, from crazies or whether it was going to be from the police or the military or whoever. It was obvious the authorities didn't like us. One evening after a meeting of peace organizers and Marines, someone, no one's sure who, machine gunned the front picture window. I had just left the house with a group of Marines to take back to the base. When Teresa returned, she saw the bullet holes and found out that Jesse Woodard, a young off-duty black Marine, had been shot and wounded. Earlier that night, she had sat in that very spot by the window. I kept thinking, why wasn't I hit? Why did they wait for me to leave? It wasn't until years later I figured that they didn't want to make a martyr out of a high school kid. I go with Cliff and Teresa to the Oceanside Pier, where she remembers how the newspapers and the coffeehouse movement sparked a more public resistance. This is the home of our humongous anti-war march that was led by the GIs, active duty GIs. Yeah. And we followed behind them, and there were thousands of people here. It was huge, huge, huge. Cliff couldn't march that day. His superiors at the base ensured he was locked up in the brig. While we're standing at the pier, he dredges up a memory of one of the many times he was punished for questioning his superiors and questioning the war. He says he was handcuffed and led to the maximum security unit, where his fellow Marines began to brutally beat him at the direction of a commanding officer. They surrounded me, and, uh, and so then the scuffle ensued. And so they were swinging fists, and, uh, but it was so many of them. And, uh, and I remember them holding my arm up, and he was grinning as he was taking the scissors, cutting off my black unity band. He said, you won't be wearing this anymore. The black unity band was a bracelet made out of shoestring. Many black Marines wore it as a symbol against racism. Cliff's commanding officers accused him of violating the dress code and disobeying orders. He got 30 days in the maximum security unit. Was, the whole place was just filled with nothing but black Marines. Nothing but a black Marine. Cliff was court-martialed on 22 charges and faced a military trial. He recalls one commanding officer going ballistic on the stand, spouting racial epithets. After that, he says, the charges were dismissed. Oceanside is a proud military town. As we're walking around, several people notice Cliff's military tattoo and his baseball hat that says Marines. They thank him. One man salutes. All right, simplify. Simplify. Do or die. Do or die. That's right. Have a good one. Yeah. Right. Simplify. Uh, simplify. That's the thing. Uh, uh, Marines will greet another Marine on the right now to this day. We'll do that. Cliff served four years at Camp Pendleton before he was honorably discharged. It's clear he's still proud even after everything he's been through. You can be a patriot and an activist as well. And, and I think the activists are 
truly the, the patriots of this country because they're, they're standing up for what is right. I see the fire still in him. I see the gentleness in him and I see the fire in his soul. Looking back, Teresa says her time as an organizer listening to GIs share their traumas probably shaped her career as a community college counselor. The Green Machine and other coffee houses near military bases were key in building the GI movement to end the war in Vietnam. That movement grew to include active rebellion from GIs across the country, some refusing to sail ships, others refusing to go into combat or going on strike at their bases. Seeing members of the military openly protest helped turn the tide against the Vietnam War. Yet this activism from within the ranks has almost been obliterated from the historical narrative. After spending the day reminiscing together, Cliff Mansker and Teresa Cerda share a long hug. Then he gets in his car for the drive back to his family and his church. You know what? You didn't give me your number. I know. It can't be another 47 years. Yeah, it can't be another 47. I don't think I could last another 47 years. <laughs> I know. I had to go back home and email him. <laughs> hey! How's it going? Now we're going to meet another vet. This one is a decorated former soldier. When he was 21, Ron Fleming was a door gunner in the Vietnam War, hanging out of a helicopter on a strap with a machine gun in his hands. Ron fought in the Tet Offensive, firing 6,000 rounds a minute. Sometimes he'd be on duty for 40 hours straight. At 21, you're bulletproof. Dying wasn't on the agenda. The California Report's health reporter, April Demboski, first brought us Ron's story last fall. Often, we journalists interview people about some of their most vulnerable moments, and we develop these relationships that can be deeply intimate but fleeting with our sources. But that's not what happened with April and Ron. I met Ron at the San Francisco VA hospital. I was working on a story about Vietnam vets and how their PTSD can flare up toward the end of life. I interviewed Ron for about two hours, and a week later, he calls me, and he asks me out to lunch. He's careful to say that he noticed my wedding ring, and he says, I don't mean any funny business. He's 74. I stall for a couple of weeks, then eventually say yes, maybe out of some sense of obligation, but really... I just like Ron. He says things like, we didn't lose that war. Everywhere I went, we literally kicked the crap out of them. We meet at a Chinese restaurant in a shopping center in Oakland. He's wearing a wool VFW beret and suspenders. Bits of Mongolian beef fall into his beard as he tells me the same war stories he told me a few weeks before. Some word for word. For example, this reflection on the insult, baby killer. We did kill women and kids. We had to. Because one of the things I learned soon was a woman 
or a kid will kill you just as dead as an old man will and just as fast. One of the uh, tactics that uh, the VC would use was they would take this cute little girl, about five or six years old, right, strap a bomb on her back and tell her, you see them Americans there? They like little girls. They got chewing gum and candy, all that stuff. Go on over there and say hi to them. As I'm trying to think of what to say, a woman one table over interrupts. Excuse me, no one wants to hear about killing children. We're trying to have lunch over here. Ron lowers his head but keeps his eyes up like a wolf growling. But he says nothing. I want to crawl into the pot of green tea and disappear. But I force myself to turn around and I say to the woman something like, we're having lunch, too, and this is what we want to talk about. And then I turn back to Ron. He says, let's get out of here. We say an awkward goodbye in the parking lot, and I drive home thinking of all the other things I wish I'd said or done. When the story about PTSD and aging Vietnam vets airs on the radio, I get emails from some vets saying they're still haunted by flashbacks later in life, and thanks for the story. And I get emails from other vets calling me naive and sentimental. They say vets need to man up and get over it. I got a handwritten card from Ron. He didn't say anything about the story. I don't know if he liked it or hated it. He just said... Thanks for sticking up for me in the restaurant. He said to call him sometime. He has a lot more stories he can tell. That was The California Report's April Demboski. If you want to hear the original story she produced about Vietnam vet Ron Fleming, we've got it on our website, californiareport.org. Next week, we've got a special edition of the California Report magazine for you as we mark the 40th anniversary of the mass suicide and killings at the People's Temple in Jonestown. All we're doing is laying down our life. We're not letting them take our life. We're laying down our life. We just want peace. In 1978, preacher Jim Jones ordered 900 of his followers to drink cyanide-laced punch. They were in a jungle in Guyana, South America. He called it an act of revolutionary suicide. These are the first pictures out of Guyana on the incredible orgy of death that took place in the People's Temple Agricultural Mission at Jonestown. Many of those who died were from California. We'll bring you the story of a man trying to figure out the branches of his family tree and how they relate to that shocking event. I knew she was dead. And I was just trying to connect with someone to say, hey, not all was lost in 1978. I, you know, I made it at least. It's a journey that involves DNA, family history, and a surprising twist. <laughs> you gotta remember where I come from. <laughs> Nothing seems strange as far as human behavior. Um, I mean, it got, it even got stranger than that. A son searches for his roots in Jonestown next week on the California Report magazine.
Before we head out, we want to give you an update on some of the candidates we've been following as part of our series, The Long Run, about women running for political office for the first time. We followed four candidates on the campaign trail, and we brought you their audio diaries over the last few months. Well, two of them won their races. Aisha Wahab will become the first Afghan-American woman to take a seat on the Hayward City Council, despite anti-Muslim attacks on her campaign. It didn't matter if they threw the fact that we were Afghan, if we were Muslim, if we were too progressive, if we uh, were too young, we proved people wrong. And Janelle Horn will become the next recorder clerk in El Dorado County. Her phone broke on the campaign trail, so she wasn't able to send us any audio. But she did write in to say she's proud to set an example for her kids, teaching them that, quote, if you work hard, be kind to others and don't give up, you can do anything. I'm Sasha Coca. If you missed any part of today's show, subscribe to our podcast, California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering this week from Katie McMurrin. The California Report senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our Green Machine story was edited by Ingrid Becker. Our team includes David Marks, Marisol Medina Cadena, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.